0: Hello and welcome to Well I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in all sorts of different ways. We chat about what they know now, what they wish they'd known earlier, and what their experience has taught them about dementia, about life, about anything and everything. I'm Peppa Kelly. My mum lived with vascular dementia for the last decade of her life. She's no longer with us but one of the main things that Mum's Dementia taught me and my family was just how little we knew about it. Now, through my work as a dementia blogger and campaigner, I know so much more about this incurable condition. Not least that the smallest things can make a huge difference to those with dementia and their families and carers. My guest this week has been with his partner for 45 years. Theirs is a love story and i found researching their lives, witnessing the tenderness, concern and pride that flows between them, very moving. And a reminder of the beauty to be found in us flawed human beings. But their story also has an ugly side. For much of their lives, these two individuals have been the victims of prejudice, rejection, violence even and one of them still bears the visible scars. The unseen emotional cuts run deeper still and have lingering consequences. Five years ago, one of them was diagnosed with dementia. He can no longer speak, he loses his way. My guest, his lover of almost half a century, holds his hand to guide him. The painful irony is that for decades into their relationship, this couple daren't hold hands in public because they're both men. Now, in different ways, they find themselves yet again confronted with discrimination. It's not aggressive this time, or even intentional. But it's there. In the preconceptions voiced as they attend countless medical and social care appointments, where they are routinely assumed to be father and son or a carer and his charge. In constantly explaining who and what they are, they face a sort of endless coming out. They are Mike Parrish and Tom Hughes. And I would love to have chatted to both of them, Tom is now non verbal, and in these strange COVID 19 times, it simply didn't work when we tried to include him in the podcast. It's so sad, but it reveals the stark truth about dementia. It's a progressive disease, and there's no getting around that. But as Mike and I talk, Tom is never far away. In fact, Mike says he and Tom are true soulmates, telling me about the Greek myth that lies behind the phrase that we humans were originally created with four arms, four legs, and a head with two faces. But Zeus split us in two, so we're all searching for our other half to complete us. And this is how he sees himself and Tom. I was struck by the power of that myth, Mike says. When the two halves meet, there's an unspoken understanding of one for the other. They're unified. There's a great joy about it. And this was what we both felt when we met and still do. I can really see this when I watch the pair of them and hear it as Mike speaks of Tom Tom. Just four years ago, in 2016, the two men married. Strange, almost unbelievable to think that when they first moved in together in 1975, aged 20, they were living illegally. Eight years earlier, their very sexuality, their gayness was deemed a criminal offence. It was in 2008 that Tom, an NHS pensions manager with an astute mathematical brain, began to experience memory problems. Five years earlier he'd been diagnosed with HIV, but medication had kept him well. However, by 2011 his worsening symptoms, including trouble understanding new tasks, forced him to retire. There were other signs that things weren't quite right. Teaspoons continually went missing, transpired Tom was throwing them away, while bottles of hand wash kept appearing. At one point, there were 23 under the sink. Finally, when they went out to a restaurant and Tom ordered only for himself, Mike knew he could no longer ignore the signs and in 2015, Tom was diagnosed with HIV-associated neurocognitive disorder or hand, a very rare form of dementia. Soon afterwards, Mike gave up his job with the fire brigade to care for him, experiencing what he describes as a tsunami of shock and grief. It's been through telling their story that he and Tom have found a way to move on. They started by sharing their experiences with dementia support groups and were soon invited onto national television and radio to speak at universities, hospitals, care homes. Being a same-sex couple experiencing dementia proved relatively rare. Mike felt a responsibility to reach out to others. It turned out to be of huge benefit to all. There's a powerful, positive outcome from storytelling, says Mike. It comes from the hope that what you're doing may help others, and it also gives a sense of normalization, validation, and the strength to carry on. Well, as a storyteller myself, Mike, you could have taken those words right out of my mouth, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you onto Well I Know Now. I know that Tom's with you there, down in Somerset, and it's so, so sad that he can't join in with our chat today. But yours is very much, in fact, it's nothing, if not the story of you both, and it's a wonderful, life-affirming one. So could you just tell us first how it all started and where and how you met and fell in love?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and hello, Pippa. Yes, the story started with both of us leading our lives independently as young gay men, but unclear about where our paths would lead. And back in nineteen seventy-five. And before, of course, access to support and services was extremely rare. And I happened to be on a a tube train and there was a sticker that clearly one of the people in the organization had put up for people like me, Mm. which invited me to contact a a group called Icebreakers
2: Mm.
1: who held Sunday tea parties. And by doing that, they invited people who thought they might be gay, who may have these feelings, to come along and talk to other like-minded people. Mm. And in doing that, a couple of weeks, attended a couple of Sunday tea parties and met some amazing people. And Mm. for me, it was amazing because I'd never really knowingly met another gay person. That was the experience. And the only visible sign of gay people was from television performances and theatre or books. And like dramatisms of anything you know they're not necessarily the real Mm. deal Mm. and so I was uh, pleasantly surprised that people were all fairly very very much like me and that was a wonderful feeling yeah and uh, sitting on a a chair taking a cup of tea in hand it was a long sofa with three or four people on it and I happened to look to my right and saw Tom, as I didn't know him then, but looking back and smiling in the the way that he does,
0: still he does do, yeah, completely,
1: absolutely disarming, kind of
0: uh,
1: lovely smile. It is. After that, we spoke, and uh, after that meeting, we decided to to meet up again for food and for a a meal. And thereafter, that's the story. It just uh, we got together, found a place to live after about six months Mm. together, and Mm. we've been together for ever since.
0: I know it really was a bit of a coup de foudre, wasn't it? I mean, it was a, just a immediate. He was the one, and you were the one for him, and yeah, I mean, beautiful story. And so you had had some good times, didn't you? You were um, Tom had come down from Glasgow, where he'd been in the Merchant Navy, and and then he became, as I said, a pensions manager with the NHS. And you, what were you doing then, uh, Mike?
1: At that specific time, I was I joined the uh, Greater London Council as a clerk and uh, moved around a bit trying to f- sort of try different sorts of work. And that became a lifelong career. Mm. After the Greater London Council was disbanded in 1986, I then joined the London Fire Brigade and uh, worked there until my retirement. So I was working with sort of in an office environment and, of course, oblivious to <laughs> what the world might offer me from that point.
0: Mm. and can you tell me about the time when I'm only going into this because of course this brings us back to discrimination which you know has sort of echoes with the dementia world to the time when you know Tom was beaten up and now you know I've met Tom in the flesh I think a couple of times actually before this coronavirus yeah. and you can still see in his face you can still see the damage to his eye when he was beaten up 30 years ago just tell us about that and the impact it had on both of you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we knew that that gay people were targets. There there was not much defence of that either politically or in the media, and it wasn't uncommon for me to hear people use words which were uh, very negative, um, even in a work environment. Of course, things have changed much since. Mm, but I,
0: I mean, incredibly, actually, hasn't? I was thinking that when you know looking you up, I thought, God, it was you know nineteen seventy five. It was so different.
1: Absolutely. Thank it, God. It felt- Well, I mean, the thing is we had no idea that that things could get better. So Mm. uh, you kind of girded yourself for, uh, Mm. you know, dealing with discrimination or prejudice or, or, you know, even physical assaults. And we knew these were happening. You know, you'd read in the paper that somebody had been assaulted or worse. And Tom was in a part of Tooting coming back home, was assaulted. He was punched so hard in the face that uh, it knocked him out, but somebody was there who it wasn't out for very long, but for for a while, I didn't know any of this. Of course, there were no mobile phones, so there was no kind of getting the message quickly to people. He did find his way to hospital, and um, I remember getting a call to say, you know, I've been uh, attacked, and you can imagine, you know, it, it's a, a, the most awful feeling in the world, and I it's difficult to describe what that feels like
0: was it definitely be- because of his sexuality i mean d-
1: oh without question there were names being called at the time oh, this yeah, was happening. yeah
0: yeah
1: and the result was that he ended up in hospital with an eye that was because of the the inflammation was completely closed and to see somebody that is so close to you mm. in that situation mm. is just awful mm. it mm. all sorts of emotions come flooding mm. in and From that point onwards, for much of the rest of his life, there was an impact from that. Yes. Because what eventually happened, he was assaulted again, can you believe, but this time he was pushed after some stairs, and uh, his retina became detached. He had a couple of operations for that. And subsequently, the macula, which is underneath the retina, Mm. was damaged. And that meant that he, as of now, has only kind of peripheral vision in that eye. So it's a long, you know, this was decades of yeah. of effect from one attack and of mm-hmm. course what that does is it puts you on your back foot even more that that the world is not safe mm-hmm. and how do you hide well people hid by not telling people they were gay or, or trying very hard to even if you went to a gay venue mm-hmm. to be very cautious about uh, mm-hmm. arriving and leaving so yeah. Yeah, that was the impact.
0: Yeah, yeah no, and, and, and a couple of things struck me about that. I mean, first of all, how just shocking, and I can't imagine what you felt, you know, the outrage, of, you know, on Tom's behalf, and he's such... Well, you both are, actually, but he, you know, he's such a gentle little soul, isn't he? I mean, you know, how anybody would do that to him is quite beyond me. And... The other thing that I did think when, you know, you've told me a bit about that before, was I wondered did, did that make you even closer? Did you feel kind of protective of each other?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think there's no doubt that if you're successful in finding a relationship which by all other measures in society is not one which people necessarily quickly accept, although family and friends did, of course, but if you're flying the face of social convention, you need to take solace somewhere and that that happened within a relationship and I would argue quite strongly that we we have a relationship which was founded not on any kind of legal commitment to one another or or observed by anybody else it was just that we decided that we needed one another we loved one another and that we could protect one another and support one another and by virtue of that I think our closeness, I'm not saying, you know, we can't do comparisons with people, mm-hmm. it's completely unfair, mm-hmm. but I would say our interdependency is very high, you know, mm. and it has been all of our lives, you know.
0: You were good together, never happier, you you say, than when, when travelling in France mm-hmm. and used to go camping and and you're quite social, animals, and cycling and, you know, I've seen pictures, it all looks really lovely, you're two young, young men, you know, and then in 2003 tom was diagnosed with hiv which must have been a, a shock you know and, and and again of course back then there's a certain stigma involved with that wasn't it? it seems like you've you know had your more than your share of all all this sort of discrimination and stigma through your lives you and tom
1: absolutely i mean this is sort of becomes layered you know for other mm, people mm, mm. Um, you know there are other issues which increase the level of Or the number of issues which you kind of intersection with. Mm. And so, having HIV still, and he was attending an HIV group over the phone during COVID with me, Mm. uh, really to sort of share experiences of people with HIV. On the basis that people are still experiencing discrimination because of it, and if it's not discrimination, it's ignorance. You know, it mm. it can be a whole range mm. of, of issues, but the fact that people are not willing to say that they are HIV, HIV mm. positive unless mm. they are under duress mm. is still very much, you know, mm. the core sort of response to mm. people from people. When it happened, it was a time when when we'd lived through the eighties, we'd lost friends from mm. um, AIDS, and uh, having HIV. It wasn't so pronounced then, but what, what happened in the eighties is we would have friends who would start having illnesses which were quite odd or re- uh, unusual, and dreadfully, sadly, you know, very often within a, a relatively short time, weeks, they might be mm. might have gone. Mm. And the HIV was only really became a kind of condition when it was treatable in the mm. sense mm. that you could go on with HIV mm, yeah. fairly normally. Yeah. So having a, a diagnosis in two thousand three was. Still, you know, we still had close memories of people who who were affected or who died, but we knew that the medication could help. But there was no guarantee. They did say at the time. I'll be honest. The consultant said you could have six weeks, six months, six years, or sixty years. We don't know.
0: Oh God! I mean, I, oh,
1: yeah. yeah, now now whether that is actually entirely true, I can tell you, I was shaken pretty well by that. But what they're saying is that some people react better to medication than others. And they do have many, many different medications. We're talking 15 years ago or something Mm -hmm. like that, 18 years ago. Mm -hmm. And things have moved on incredibly since then too. But um, we had to wait in the waiting room. It was the last patient seen. And I had this gut feeling that we were going to get bad news. And indeed, we did. And we had to go home. I didn't drive to that event. I, I wish I had have done. We had to get in a taxi. Mm. And, of course, what I wanted to do all the way home was give him a big, big cuddle and, mm. and tell him how, you know, it was okay. But actually, I felt inhibited because we're in a, somebody else's car. How do you know if somebody's going to say, oi, oi, you know, none of that, or if they're going to say, might just ignore you or, or ask you mm. what's happened, you know, mm. it, because you don't know. Now, we could have been very brave and just done it, which of mm. course people do, that's what people do eventually. Mm. And and indeed to some extent, so so did we. And once we moved to Bath mm. and I needed to hold his hand, mm. I had absolutely no problem at all with it, mm. you know. But then again, because you're you know, we're sixty plus, uh exactly you we're know. kind of a bit invisible yeah. to people as well. Yeah. And People, of course, have seen him as not my partner, but as a friend or a brother or a, some other kind of connection to me. Mm-hmm. So, so the discrimination is more difficult. However, we have had two bits of discrimination here from people. So it is still there. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's a big thing anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, not for us, not now. But um, in the world at large, it is. It's still an mm-hmm. issue. So, mm-hmm. so the HIV was a powerful moment in our lives, and it reinforced this idea that we were unsafe. um, Absolutely, I was going to just mention
0: that because there was another quote I saw you made because I know that you now go to the Rainbow Cafe which is sort of my friend Sally Nocker, who I've also had on the podcast and you know which is where gay and lesbian people with dementia can go and it is a place where you feel safe, that's one of the things you say and you said that when you've been in a threatening environment you hold on to it all your life.
1: Yes, I mean we're learning from experience which is what we do as we evolve as human beings we we learn what's good you know if you put your hand anywhere and there's something hot mm. and you get burnt mm. and those things you may not dwell on them they may not keep you awake at night mm. but they become part of your armory your your, yeah, your of who kind you are. of mm. yeah mm. And, and how you protect yourself mm. so depending on your personality you can of course ignore these things and some people indeed do but by and large we tend in order to survive and this is what our drive is by and large we use our knowledge in order to make judgments about risk,
2: yeah.
1: and uh, as people are all now having to do with mm. COVID, so mm. so in some mm. ways everybody's having to do this
2: mm.
1: risk judgment all of the time. But but as a gay person mm. in those early days, it was a bit more unique to us, but yes. certainly others yes. as well. But.
0: Yes, no, and because we are all now living in that. You know, I I was saying to a friend, it's this constant low level anxiety, isn't it? And yeah, uh, yeah and it, it's really draining. Actually, I've found you know you don't you're not aware of it but then you get I think you do get more tired and everything's so a little bit odd
1: a friend of ours would have lost his job because of it we Mm. had people thrown out of their family homes Mm. because Mm. indeed to some extent that's what happened with Tom it was a disagreement that led to him joining Merchant navy and trying to leave uh, the bad world behind but um, we also I mean I also experienced this as did he at work so somebody Mm. said to me once made sure I don't know whether he made sure I was alone but I was Mm. in the sort of stairwell where the lifts were and he just said to me casually we're a bit worried about you Michael because you're not married and I was probably in my kind of uh, late 20s maybe very early 30s Mm. now that wasn't an obtuse or an open kind of obvious comment but it we all know what it meant you know mm-hmm. he he didn't in case he was overheard or mm. in case I wanted to complain I couldn't complain somebody said we're worried because you're not married because that's really not something you can complain about well maybe you could <laughs> it was, it's, it's kind of subtle yeah well
0: it's a ridiculous um, thing to, to say isn't uh, it it seems ridiculous now
1: it does but of course then you have to go in the next day yeah. and you know that's been said and you don't know who else he, he may have mm, told, and mm, who else might think said that you're your back. gay as well. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm, mm. And, and hence, I think this is where the argument, which I think is the right one, is that actually the best thing you can do is as soon as it's practicable and and, and appropriate. And of course, it is much much different today. Mm, yeah, then it's yeah. not a bad idea to say, by the way everybody i'm gay and yeah, yeah. eventually i did you know yeah. because it stops that yeah it stops that sort of uh, guesswork and and yeah. uh, but it is you know so you could be at home and you'd be worried about people who knock on the door tom was on television once he was i'll tell you a very short thing he was on i was invited to go on to a tv program with janet street porter and it was in her early days as a journalist and it was about young gay people coming mm. to london mm. and what it was like and tom I said, I didn't want to do that because I wasn't out. Tom was a bit more out than me. He Mm. went to the studio. He had a shirt on him which said, I'd rather be hated for what I am rather than loved for what I am not. It's a very Mm. old adage. Mm. He wasn't seen talking, but he was seen smoking. And after that, some rather unpleasant neighbours decided that that was their opportunity to have a bit of a go at us. And they used to come into our house to meet our neighbours in the house and ask some things like, and I will say it, it's not rude, but mm. I overheard one say, and I think it was so that I could hear it, what's it like living with queers, you know? Mm. And, um, mm. you know, that that's mm. the kind of thing. That, so if you've got it at home, you've got it at work, you've got it inside, but you mm. don't know where it is. You know, you're kind of on the, the back foot all of the time. Yes, yeah, you know? and it's
0: striking it's like, at your identity, isn't it? You know, that's hence yeah. the slogan on Tom's T-shirt. It's all yeah, about yeah. who I am and, yeah, yeah. And interesting, again, with those parallels of identity and things, you know, that you encounter with somebody with dementia. It was sort of carrying on and there were more symptoms that Tom was displaying. He was forced to retire on on medical grounds, wasn't he, in 2011. And you'd, you'd known that things weren't really quite right. Another thing you said was that you'd come home at the end of the day and Tom would still be having his lunch. But you explained that, you know, your brain didn't really want to see it. But then it was when this incident happened in the restaurant that you thought you couldn't ignore it. And then Tom was finally diagnosed with this rare form of dementia. And soon after he was diagnosed, you gave up work, didn't you? And I'd like to talk to you. I thought you were very articulate on what it means to be a carer, which is such a complex subject which I felt as well, living the life of two people is one way you put it. So just tell us about how you felt when you did that for somebody that you loved so much.
1: In some ways, the decision about caring for somebody, and bearing in mind that dementia is a a sort of a slow, but tends to be a slow Mm. burn kind of situation. So you're constantly changing, the situation is changing, and you're adapting. And to some extent, we do that without thinking as one of his abilities might decline so you kind of fill in the gap and that's what you're doing all the time but I think for me one of the issues I was asked actually early on is do you see see yourself as a carer or Mm. as a partner and I think Mm. this is such an important thing Mm -hmm. on the one hand I don't want to be called a carer because he's actually my partner even mm. though his condition is now completely different from when i first met him as an example mm. he's still the same person and i mm. still love him and we still mm. enjoy things together and so on um, and so nothing has changed about that the only thing is that his abilities have changed around that however in order to function for him it most effectively in other words to get the support that i need in order to do that indeed the sort of support that he needs indirectly from other people outside I have to call myself a carer so what I think a lot of people resist it on the basis that for that reason that that it, it kind of denies the fact that there is a loving relationship there or it reduces it in some way mm-hmm. um, however I do think that in order to do the job properly if you see it like that then you have to do that you have to take on the formal role and the title of the role because that's the only way you're going to get access to services effectively and to identify yourself like that also means that your mind is open to the things that you need in order to do the care and of course that's hmm. but not all of that is innately you know obvious my experience in the past three four five years has been relentless research trying to find hmm. things out Because the support for people with dementia and people caring for them is not a proactive process. It is one where you as the carer or the person looking after somebody has to really just do all the footwork in order to get the things that you need. And it's a long learning process. You can get advice and tips and signposting and all the rest of it, but actually you've got to just make it your job Mm. to learn about what you need to know in order to do it. When you're confronted with a day job which is becoming full-time... Not your normal sort of working job, but a care mm-hmm. job. The strains on the amount of, uh, and stress goes upwards because you need to still do the caring as well as maybe have a, a sort of do all the preparation for um, medical appointments, all of the the sitting with him, every single one of those, every phone call. You're stretching yourself all of the time, and so I think the issue is that he can't successfully continue with good health without me saying, "Yep, yeah, okay." I am both your partner and your carer. So maybe that's the compromise is to accept both roles and mm. with those titles, you know.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Well, that's very well explained, actually, because I think it's a funny little word, isn't it? And it contains, as Nikki Gerard said, you know, such a complexity of issues and emotions. And that's quite apart from what you said was one of your things that you know now when I asked you for three was that, as well as all that you've explained so well, in that you're having to be the person who really goes out and finds out about this, which is possibly not always quite the way in the same way as it is with dementia, Um, but certainly it is with dementia carers, you're also sort of having your own life subsumed, not just by that, which is enough in itself, but by just the appointments, the medical and social care and financial and legal appointments. You said in your first year you had 54, and... You know, you you got very worried then, presumably quite down, actually, that this was just your life, was just becoming one long round of appointments, which, as you rightly say, is a lot of the time kind of sitting and waiting, isn't it?
1: Exactly. I did start totalling them up as each year passed on the basis that I needed to reflect on this because this was something which I thought was almost unmanageable, the impact on it. Mm. I have to say, very early on, this idea that, that I had any kind of um, goals in my own life for me yeah. personally you know yeah. nurturing my own interests and mm. and so on I really had to just say and I don't want this to sound for other no. people mm. you know who might be looking after mm. people to measure that somehow you subsume everything that you personally mm. your sort of targets for your life but um, it is a full-time job when you get to somebody of Tom's condition mm. and I think the expectation is that you're going to spend your, almost all of your time not endlessly but most of it is going to be targeted at the person you care for so that the 54 appointments it's not only was i going to i was having to explain to each and every one of them Personally, our background, the fact that mm. we're two men, and mm. by the way, he's not my father, he's mm. not my brother. Mm. And then you go into you know, all of his historical health issues. And I know we all do this when we have a, mm. a, a... But normally, you only do that for yourself. And that's a new lesson, is to learn how to convey all of this information to the people that you want to support mm. him or your partner or the mm. person you're caring for. Mm. And uh, in doing that, you progressively lose the time that you need in order to develop any interest and i i have an interest in music and art and i do get a bits of time and i do do some but to get quality time away from him now not early on mm. is very difficult I, mm. I there's a great deal of guilt if i mm. leave him for to do a zoom meeting mm. uh for you know a, an hour or two hours or more mm. it's often not more you know I finish that and I feel there's a, a level of guilt you know even if he doesn't express it and he won't mm. but I feel guilty so so you mm. have to deal with that as well you know it's a, an extraordinary oh, I think
0: guilt is the constant companion of the care not yeah, yeah. Isn't
1: it, mm. it yeah. is yeah. so so yeah mm,
0: but yeah. I know you've also said that you want him to remain at home and there was another very nice quote you gave actually about why oh here it is because if if he ever did have to go into care, how can I be sure that they understand and love him as much as I do? You're resisting letting go because who can substitute for me, the person he's lived with for 40 years? And then, of course, overlaying that, you have got that little niggling question, and will the care home discriminate because he's gay?
1: Absolutely. And I think I'm not saying it's unique to us by any means. And, and I think all of the work that we've done in connection with the presence of LGBT people in these environments, progressively in terms of care, support, medical, health, social services and so on, is not to get more or better from them. It's just mm. to get mm. to at least be given the opportunity to have the same. Parity. and, and mm. uh, Parity. Parity. Mm. But sometimes if you're in a minority, you've got to kind of kick a bit, harder, a bit harder in order to mm. be sure that you are there. And of course, all of that is is very much... Um, it's how you perceive things, of course. Mm. Now, I, I've met so many amazing people in this mm. whole journey. Mm. I can't tell you. I mean, that could be a story in itself, uh, mm. the astounding love and compassion that people have. For example, feeding him in in a, a local pret that we mm. have in Bath, mm. and I'm feeding him uh, his hot meal, and a couple at the table next to us mm. say such wonderful, beautiful, supportive words, and, mm. and I can't tell you how that actually feeds you that kind of mm. gives you that urge and that sort of sense that you're doing the right thing and mm, it, so emotional it's emotional
0: nourishment isn't oh it? it's, it's wonderful i mean yeah. it's so undervalued
1: absolutely and as i say we've managed to get this in so many different environments which is fantastic but but my thought of him leaving me in any capacity even mm. during our lives it was you know if he go to a course or, or i went on to a course as odd as that sounds you know I'd be quite lonely, or not worried, if not lonely, then worried about him. How can I be sure he's safe? You know, mm. so the idea of going into a home is almost, you know, unimaginable for mm. me. I, we do know there are problems in some homes, and I've been to some, and I've talked to people, and there's a lot of work going on, and I know Sally's doing a huge amount of work in this to try and ensure that that people understand not how we need anything more new better, but how that we can be accepted, identified and respected, that kind of thing. Mm, mm. Uh, But I'd still worry about that hugely. And I worry that he wouldn't see my face, he wouldn't feel safe himself, and particularly because he can't uh, vocalise that even more so. That makes him very
0: vulnerable, doesn't
1: it? Extremely, yeah. So so Mm. he's very hard and I've committed absolutely to have him at home You know, as long as it isn't of any disbenefit to him
0: Mm.
2: uh,
1: Mm. during this situation. And uh, again, something that I would say to other people is to think about maybe certainly community nurses are are an amazing uh, resource for us now. And also the local hospice who uh, have been supporting us with keeping him here and giving me advice and support and knowledge in order to do my job as well as I can. So.
0: Yes, people forget that hospices, the vast majority of what they do is this outreach work, isn't it? It's not actually in the hospice.
1: Absolutely. Mm,
0: they're, they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Mm, so I'm glad you're getting support there, Mike. That's really good. And sticking with some of the positives, because I didn't want this to be too negative, <laughs> you found this sort of salvation in a way through sharing your story, through telling your story, and how it's given you a validation and, you know, the you feel you can hopefully make a difference and have an influence. And you mentioned there that it's really had a positive impact on you, that, because you don't feel frightened about anything anymore. You were saying for the first time it's taking you till you're into your 60s that you feel that. Explain some of that. And
1: It's a revelation to have, and it might be some people think, well, I don't understand what you mean being frightened all of your life. Mm. But actually, fearful is probably as as good a word. Mm. But mm. there a point came, which, and I'll go into the sort of the background to it, mm. but the point came when I just reflected on myself and thought, Jen, for the first time, I'm not holding my stomach tight. I'm not gripping my hands together. I'm not worrying about who's going to knock at the door or mm-hmm. make a phone call. Or, or I didn't worry about anything. And part of that is because Tom's condition to look after somebody, it becomes not so overwhelming that I'm not thinking about those things, but the priority, my heart and my energy and everything I have is about supporting him. So I film it as a protector as much as anything, mm-hmm. but but also that I'm much less caring of the negativeness because mm-hmm. I've got something so much more important than that in my life. It, it's become unimportant. But, yeah, absolutely. And the road to that, the path to that has been mentioned a little bit about the support we've had. We have had the most amazing support, which keeps coming back, you know, even now, to comment on how things are for us, to tell our story, to try to articulate how it's been for us and that's partly because for me personally it was that when we started our journey there were no obvious places for lgbt people to go and i won't mention the organisation but With i With dementia went to you a, mean? Yeah, with dementia. Mm. Um, mm. When I went to quite a, a well-known organisation and looked up their literature, I found just a couple of paragraphs, quite mm. literally, mm. about LGBT mm. people and how they should be mm. cared for or, or looked after or, or, or reflected on. You know, mm. And I thought it was not right. And then I thought, actually... If you do the maths, if you've got nearly a million people with with mm, um, mm. dementia in the country, mm. and who knows, it, it's around that figure, a bit mm, less mm. at the
0: moment. Absolutely, yeah. And
1: then just do the quick maths on terms of the numbers of LGBT people. Likely, we're looking at for just gay people alone, probably, you know, sixty thousand to mm. eighty or a hundred thousand people. Mm. Mm. So, sorry, to LGBT people. Mm. And so, what I felt was, how on earth are all these people coping mm. with the lack of coordination, and the lack of a steady flow of regular knowledge that people mm. might have, and the other factor which came into it was that uh, Stonewall did a a report on older gay people's mm. um, sense of happiness and mm. the report and it's a proper social you know study said that um, one in four. LGBT people are fearful of statutory services. And that's that's only a year or two ago. Yeah. So if you combine the fear of being in, in the presence of statutory services mm. with the lack of knowledge and information available to mm. you, mm. you know, you, you're just making it very, very difficult for people to present themselves for the support and, and so on that they need. To, to and absolutely. And one last thing I mentioned on that is that statistically. 28% of people who are LGBT are in long-term relationships, whereas 48% of people who are heterosexual are in long-term relationships. I'm not sure how good those figures are, yeah. but that would suggest that, that And again, a lot of them
0: live alone, don't they?
1: Absolutely. And again, you know, if you're living alone, you've got mm. dementia, your family or, or friends, whoever's helping you, mm. they need to be really good advocates in mm. order to get you the support that you need. Mm. But for me, that became our kind of quest, in a yes. way, as well as just going and doing what we needed to do. And by doing that, we've met so much support. We've met so many people who've been incredibly helpful. And not only that, that things now are different. There have been major national projects by a number of organisations yes. um, to make available routes through to LGBT people that they can feel initially, you know, particularly safe to do so and that there's information that they can access And they're also protected by the law. You need to sort of make all these things available to people.
0: Yes. I think you're doing a a brilliant job, Mike, because I have to say, I can't remember when we first kind of had a proper conversation. I think it was for a piece I was writing. And I think it comes back again to, you know, ignorance on people's part and a lack of knowledge because to be perfectly truthful, I'd always try and be as truthful as I can. I think my initial thought was, ignorant as it was until I talked to you, But why would you need to be differentiated? You know, why are you having to hold your hands up and say, we need different services because we're gay people? Then as I talked to you, and I also can't remember when when the first time was, but I saw the, it's not all nuanced either. Some of it's a nuanced sort of, you know, difference and need and fear, but it's also a very straightforward sort of the barriers you face and that somebody who is straight who hasn't come across that just has no inkling of you know it's it's ignorance is a bit like the whole dementia thing you know you you don't find out about it you don't know about it so you sort of don't give much thought to it and then when you talk to somebody who's got dementia or not the time comparing them you know it's this ignorance about a subject and the preconceptions that you get about it and then actually when you meet somebody who tells you about it you think well Oh, I didn't know that. And I didn't know that. And most of the time, it's what you don't know. And it's um, the great unknowns, isn't it? It's not knowing what you don't know.
1: Well, a lot of it comes down to assumptions, and that isn't malign in any way. Yes, exactly. It is, and there's your wife joining us, that kind of thing. Or if I talk about my partner, I mean, even today, 45 years on from when Tom and I met, I have communications with people. And if I don't make it clear that he and I are partners they will assume that i have a mrs parish it's not meant to be hurtful or anything no, of course not it's just the, the presumption Assumption's the, made, yeah. why a- absolutely and it, all it does is it just you feel undermined by that it's not mm. going to make mm. me not sleep at night mm. but when you start adding those sort of little things up mm they begin to add up to do you have an identity and is it, exactly. is it equitable with everybody exactly.
0: else? Exactly, no, that's what I... And, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: You know, and I, I can understand why people... I mean, this is probably dangerous territory <laughs> to say that they might think that gay people are constantly asking for more and more and more. Actually, it's about constantly asking for the same. The same. It's about yeah, getting yeah, yeah. to a point where you're respected for your difference, not more so or less so. Yeah. I'd say that is the story. And it's going to take a long time. We've, mm. I mean, Tom and I are one generation mm. and we've seen enormous North changes. Change. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's and true. So, and younger people now, and we know younger people who are gay and their experience of it is utterly different. Yes. You know, it's everywhere, yes. it's valid.
0: Yes, that's a really good uh, point, Mike, and it's worth underlining that and the way it's changed. And I think that uh, you're involved in something that displays that uh, point very well, aren't you? It's coming up.
1: Absolutely. I think this is, if you like, the ultimate sort of expression of of our journey is that uh, recently a film has been made called Supernova starring Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci so it's a mainstream film about Mm -hmm. a gay couple where one of them is living with dementia and I think this is the sort of golden chalice for us in a way because it's it is a reflection of to some extent of our life and the other thing about this is that and this is where things have changed so dramatically, Mm. is that we have also been asked to comment on this with the Alzheimer's Society, who are understandably using this as an opportunity to um, highlight issues and support for people in that situation, and also interviews with newspapers like the Daily Telegraph, for example.
0: Brilliant. No, this is, you know, as I often said, the soft power of culture, which is what we're talking about, is, is incredibly important.
1: The trouble is, and this could be in terms of dementia a big issue for people who maybe were born when it was illegal so Mm -hmm. Mm pre-67 who who grew up as young gay men fearful that they could just be locked up because they're gay or or met somebody and i'll come to a, a point about that in a minute and then they get dementia later in life and then they forget all the changes and you know they may even have been instrumental in changing the law to make lgbt issues you know equal to heterosexuals And then by the time they're getting much older, and we now know there's a kind of cohort of people, which is another issue that I'm interested in, who will be going into care homes, who will be puzzled about their sexuality, not because they're puzzled about being gay, but because they're worried that if they say to somebody, they might be locked up. You know, who knows what sort of stories are you in their mind. You mean because
0: of their dementia now, they're sort of forgetting where we've got to, and so the fear exactly. will... Yeah, yeah, and they'll think that it's illegal uh, again and go absolutely. back to the course because they've got dementia. Uh,
1: yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and we know that, to some extent, not everybody, but a lot of people will defer to memories that they had earlier Early on. No, definitely. On.
0: I hadn't <laughs> thought
1: uh, of that. And one thing that even occurred to me, and I did, I have used this uh, on, on one other occasion, but I remember when Tom was not... He, he was having problems with his... Continents. But we were still visiting a local public toilet. So we'd go into the town centre, we'd have something to eat, we'd have a walk around. And then I'd take him into the toilet. And progressively, I had to help him mm. by standing at the urinal, uh, yeah. you know, helping him with the trousers. And I, do you know, there was a moment I did this. and yeah. There wasn't anybody yeah. pointing or saying anything. Yeah. And I thought, goodness me. If we'd have done this when we met yeah. and a policeman had come in, have we'd arrested. have been arrested. Yeah. And I think if that also tells you about what's in your mind and what you've done mm. and what, what mm. society tells you, mm. it just plays on you a little mm. bit. You know, I didn't feel hurt about it. I didn't mm. leave there worried in mm. any way. You thought but, it,
0: but, you know, it, yeah, yeah, it, it, it pinged so. into your mind. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, mm. Tom had a birthday, didn't he, in August, and you gave him the most fabulous present. You had a song. Using your words, you got Canadian singer-songwriter Robert Alfieri to set the words that you gave him, to make them and turn them into lyrics and set them to music. And it really sort of sums up your life. And you're two men that I've, you know, had the privilege of meeting. And I just think you're... It's rarely you see two people who are so much in love after 45 years. It's just (laughs) lovely to see you. And I think we're going to play out with... It's called While We Wait... Personally, I just like to think of it as Tom's song <laughs> and uh, it's, it's really lovely. So thank you for talking and thank Tom for, you know, sharing his story too because it's both of your story.
1: Thank you, Pippa. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: No pleasure.
2: I'll hold you while we wait Wait for the next day When I can hold you again It's your face that I can never forget Even though you cannot say the same I haven't heard your voice but I know it's there When you reach out for me I can feel you We have each other, oh that's all we need Cause the others don't know our truth, you and me While we wait, see you slowly drift away
0: Mike and I were very worried about excluding Tom from this podcast, but he was there with us. I don't know if you felt it as much as I did, but with Mike comes Tom. As Mike said, my heart and my energy and everything I have is about supporting him. Through their 45 years together, the prejudice, stigma, violence, and then illness, first in the form of HIV and now dementia, has drawn them ever closer. Their love, a love that once dared not say its name, really does seem to conquer all. I was also struck by my ignorance, ignorance of what these two gentle men, in every sense of the word, have had to contend with, the fear they've lived with. In 1975, the pair, in Mike's words, constantly girded themselves against verbal and physical assault. The world wasn't safe. Safe, a word to which Mike kept returning, and the reason why, After nearly half a century together, Mike is committed to looking after his husband at home for as long as he possibly can. I often say that being dementia-friendly is actually simply being friendly, being kind, thoughtful, a little more patient, a tad more tolerant. Anything that's good for people living with dementia very often benefits us all, because it's all about us, not us and them. Whether it's us without dementia, or us who aren't gay, and the rest of them whoever they are. We're all human and we all need one another. Think about the comfort Mike drew from a stranger's kind words at Pret-a-Manger in Bath. After our chat I felt I knew quite a bit more about what it is to care for someone with dementia who happens to be gay and a whole lot more about what it means to love someone else. Really love them. Thank you Mike and thank you Tom. Finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.